Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone, and welcome to Raising Parents, the Parenting Science Insights podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Now, let's get started. Hey guys, welcome back to the Parenting Podcast. Um, We all know adolescence is a period of rapid biological and physiological change, which have a notable impact on parent-child relationships. Uh, In other words, the interaction between both parent and child become harder to flow easily. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about today, joined by our guest, Elizabeth Stitt. How are you going today, Elizabeth? I'm wonderful. Thank you, Dina, so much for having me today. That's so great. Um, do you mind sharing some background information as to your um, work to the audience? Sure. I come to parenting coaching from teaching. And most of my 25 years were with what we call middle school students. So 11, 12, 13-year-olds, sometimes some 10-year-olds, sometimes some 14-year-olds. But yeah, hours and hours and hours of spending time thinking about how to engage with those kids successfully so that they feel safe and secure so they can be productive and get the most out of school. Okay, wow. So it's basically from a teaching background that you sort of developed it even further? Yeah, I had the opportunity to take on a role at school part-time, which we called outreach teacher. And what it really was, was somebody who was able to be on campus to sort of interface with parents on various issues. And so if it was a social emotional issue, then the office manager would, instead of sending them to the principal of the school, would say, well, why don't you talk to Mrs. Stitt? And it was really fascinating, Dina, because they would come in with, you know, what I call the tip of the iceberg. They would come in with some small issue, maybe a conflict with a teacher, maybe a kid was bullying them. And when I just asked, what else is going on for your student right now, for your child right now? What else? What else? What else? When I got to the bottom of the iceberg, it was this profound sense of overwhelm and isolation on the part of the parents. And and really sort of guilt too, like feeling guilty and inadequate. And that is a big shift, I think, from what I experienced when my kids were that age. My kids are now in their 20s. And certainly from when I first started teaching, parents seemed much more relaxed about the act of parenting. Like they didn't, the standards weren't so high. They didn't think, that they had to be absolutely everything to their child and they didn't think their child had to be perfect. Mostly it was, if I keep my child alive, more or less they're nice people, you know, they're kind to people or they're considerate, more or less given that they're teens and sometimes they're going to forget. And 
they do okay in school. Right? They're sort of for their ability. They're, they're basically performing. There wasn't this immense anxiety about each data point of performance sort of from preschool on about where their kids were going to go into college, what kind of job they were going to be able to get, what their future was going to be. There was much more of a sense of, ah, it turned out fine. Things worked out for me. It's going to work out for them. Okay. Well, that's, um, I, I mean, I think the basis is keeping a child alive. And I think that's a good way, place to start for a little bit. But um, so before we get further into that, um, we love to start off the segment with rapid fire questions. So just say the first title or person that sort of comes to mind when you hear these different areas. Sure. So first is your favorite book. To Kill a Mockingbird. Ah, okay. Okay. Um, what about your favorite movie? West Side Story. The old one. I haven't seen the new one. Okay. Yeah, I've seen the old one. I think I like it better than the new one. Okay. Um, your favorite podcast? Uh, we have one called This American Life, which is really quirky and interesting and um, features a lot of different kinds of people from different walks of life, but usually they have sort of unusual stories. Okay. Um, favorite documentary? Uh, I, I, I have never thought about a documentary as a favorite, I have to tell you. Um, I, I am watching one right now about, called Children of Destiny, which is set in uh, India. It's about uh, an Indian who went to America and as his way of giving back to India has set up the school for children of untouchables. Oh, wow. Um, okay, yeah. so famous role model. Uh, I mean, I think that I, Maya Angelou comes to mind, the author of, of I Know Where the Cage Bird Sings. She is a woman who had a lot of heartache, and yet she took on life with gusto and optimism. And yeah, I think she was pretty fabulous. Okay, wow. Um, your favorite app at the moment? Oh, um, I, use, I use an app called Hula, which is how I get audiobooks free from the library. Okay. That's, I mean, that's the one I use every day. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, how about your favorite news website? Well, here in the States, National Public Radio. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, your favorite artist? Oh, it would have to be one of the Impressionists. Probably Renoir is, is one of my favorite artists. Um, I love his paintings. Okay. Um, favorite course that you have completed? Favorite course I have completed? Uh, <laughs> you know, I have to say that I, I, I'm so terrible. I was a teacher for so long. And yeah, I really, I try not to get into formal learning situations. <laughs> I'd much rather just learn something on my own. That's a great perspective. Um, how about your favorite event that you've recently attended? Oh, well, I just went to my niece's baby shower, and that's the first first grandchild of that generation. So that's really fun and exciting. Yeah, that's always a favorite kind of family event to go to. Yeah. So um, 
Practices or habits are a great great way to maintain and build your life up. Um, what is a practice that you deal with to handle conflict? Um, I, th- I think it's the work that I do on my own, separate from the conflict. That's really supportive. Uh, for instance, I have a gratitude practice and, you know, I just write down things that I'm grateful for. And that helps me to keep things in perspective. That when I have this sort of running metal list present in my mind, then when I get into conflicted situations, the conflict seems less essential and less, less important. Because um, I can think of lots of other things that are nourishing and enriching my life. So with that, you talked about it being very um very grounding in a way. Um, what are the challenges that you have when you're practicing gratitude? Oh, I mean, I suppose sometimes I feel a little bit pressure to, to come up with something new and interesting and deep when in fact I seem to, like if I look back and I read back over my gratitude, like a perfectly made hot cup of tea makes the list a lot of the time, which doesn't feel very deep or profound. Um, so, you know, sometimes sometimes my, my sense of what it should look like gets in the way of doing it. Uh, and I only, honestly, I only do it on the weekdays formally. Like I sit down at my desk and that's one of the first things I do at my desk before I start my work day. Um, so then on the weekends, it's, it's more of a, more of a gestalt kind of thing, more of a, just a, a sense of, Like I live in a very beautiful place and I get to go to the beach and to go on hikes a lot. And so the weekend, it's more a sense of. (sighs) Okay. So um, how often do you, every, apart from every morning, do you have moments that you sort of need it a little extra? And when do you usually add that to your daily routine? Well, I mean, I would say. Yeah, I would say that having practiced it pretty consistently, definitely during COVID, was super consistent that, you know, now if you get into a slightly irritating situation, like Dina, I don't know, you come to the traffic light and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and for some reason the light isn't changing. So the ability in that moment to take a deep breath and go, what's the silver lining? in the light not changing what's the silver lining and getting to sit for an extra moment and not have to go rushing forward to the next thing Hmm. so that's kind of an example i think of how it can come in at, at at an odd moment and i definitely think that the practice of writing it down helps your brain get there faster in those other situations when you might need it to support you okay um, so based on your experience with writing down gratitude and having that moment, um, do you recommend any other ways to practice or be combined to this particular practice? I know you mentioned hiking and all those other physical aspects. So what others do you really recommend to go along with it? 
I mean, I think for families, it has to be a little bit more visible for the kids, right? So that, you know, my kids are grown. So the fact that I'm doing it myself um, in, in my diary first thing in the morning, like that does it for me. But I think that with kids in the home, it's important to make these practices more visible for kids. And so I had my, my nieces, my niece and nephews here last summer. And so every night at the table, you know, we had to do three good things at the table as a way of focusing on gratitude and a way of, of focusing on things. And so I think building it in as ritual definitely helps to support us in doing it in, in other ways. Um, and then as you, you know, as you go through your gratitude practice, you begin to find those things and those themes, which are the ones, like I said, the good cup of tea often makes my list, but, you know, being on the beach, watching the waves, going on a hike, seeing the light come through the trees, getting up a little bit higher and seeing the view out over the bay, all those things become, you know, what you're listing on your gratitude. So in a sense, you now have a manual for yourself of what are the things that uplift me during the day? Because as I go back, as I go to record it, I think, oh, that was, you know, oh, that was really lovely. And so then you're noticing them more. So for instance, uh, I came back from the grocery store and my husband had uh, taken the cookies out of the oven. I baked cookies. And that, you know, that cookie smell that hits, that fresh cookie smell that hits you as you walk in the door. Like, I think you're more aware of, of those moments in that way. Okay. Does it make sense? Yes. Yes, it does. It yeah. really does. Yeah. yeah. It's a really good metaphor that you've used with that. Um, so now we're going to start talking about the topic that I've asked you here today. So a parent-child conflict. Um, children start to feel and notice conflict during early stages in life. Becoming adolescents, it's very common to butt heads with their parents. Um, so these conflicts are also thought to be a means of negotiate relation changes. Um, conflicts do arise because adolescents and parents differ in their expectations regarding behavior, in particular with the timing of transitions in authority, autonomy, and responsibilities. So how would you define parent-adolescent conflict? Okay. <laughs> um, let me... Um... That was a very pretty speech, Dina. <laughs> and um, let me let me put it into um, a little bit more uh, friendly language, if I may. Mm -hmm. So, when we are the parents of our little kids, in order to be effective, we need to be running the show. We need to be setting up the systems and the routines, and to be clear about you know what is it that we want our kids to do when, and. Of course, even little kids push back and need some power, but the kinds of choices that we offer them are, you know, do you want your red sweater or your blue sweater? Do you want to put on your, your boots first or do you want to put on your sweater first, right? These are very small choices within this bigger framework that we're providing. As our kids hit adolescence, the big job of parenting is to not be the captain of the ship, or at least not eventually, it's really that shift 
to walking alongside your kid. And one of the analogies I like to use is learning to drive a car because today's parent in particular can hold on too tight, right? The helicopter parent is micromanaging everything and is saying the way that everything should be and should look. And they're making things their own. They are, you know, it's, it's the parent who says, uh, like, oh, we got, we got an A on that assignment, mm-hmm. right? We really aced that assignment. When parents say that, not only is that like a red flag for me, but it kind of sends chills down my spine because that tells me that that is a parent who is still being the captain of the ship and isn't at all realizing that with their emerging adolescent who becomes their emerging adult, that they need to make the shift to be walking alongside their child, to become their child's wise guide rather than the captain of the ship. And driving a car is a great analogy because after all, at the end of the day, if you want your child to pass their driver's license test, they have to get in the car and they have to drive by themselves. And not only can you not take the wheel, but you can't even sit beside them in the car to do it. And if parents are really being successful as parents of adolescents, they're not only thinking about that model in terms of letting their kid learn how to drive, they're thinking about it in all the other aspects of life too. That by the time I send an adult out into the world, in order to be sending an adult out in the world, I have to have given my teenager a ton of micro experiences of learning how to do all kinds of things independently and how to think for themselves instead of us kind of coming in as their executive functioning brain, Mm -hmm. which is a, a real problem that we have. And aiding us in doing that, our aid in making that shift is the child's own natural biological process by which they have to separate from us and they have to push away from us. And that pushing away from us is that signal to us. That's the like, ding, 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 ding. It is now time for you to step back and to give your child some space. So biology helps us with this process if we're in tune to it and we listen to it. Okay. So with that, would you say the conflict is more just the um, just the helicopter part of parenting that sort of has that conflict between a parent and a a teenager, for example? I think that being a helicopter parent definitely exasperates the situation because you you're in more direct conflict. There is going to be some conflict along the way because parents have the big picture. And so we have a better ability to see risk and danger where a child doesn't yet see it. And so we may still, even when we're doing our best to become alongside them as their wise guide, we have a better better sense of going, if we're really paying attention, what's an appropriate pace for doing that? And if you, I kind of think of ages 12 to 18, like this is kind of a 12 to 18 process. And if you are doing it kind of slowly and gradually at the beginning, you know, you might have a 13 year old who is like, oh, you know, 
this band is coming to town and my friends and I want to go see it. And uh, we can take the, the train in the city and go see it. It's right near the train. And at 13, the parent may still be going like, no way. No, you are not taking a train independently all the way into the city to a concert where there are going to be people drinking and on drugs and, and yep, no way. So some of that conflict is inherent in the fact that the child's going to push more. But for a lot of it, a parent can avoid by giving their children more space and, and more choice. And here's what happens. When you build up sort of this back and forth trust of you want to do something, I'm not sure about you doing it. Let's talk through why you want to do it, what it's going to look like, and how I as your parent can feel comfortable letting you do it. If we've had a lot of those micro experiences where the child has been able to see that we're willing to listen and we're willing to uh, stay positive and to, to see where they can kind of figure out some things themselves. Then when it comes to the big thing where we're not ready to budge yet, they are more willing to listen to us because they don't feel like it's just a knee-jerk, no, no way kind of reaction. They recognize that how we're reacting here and the firm limit that we're holding about their safety here is different than all those other uh, conflicts that we have already negotiated in, in a constructive kind of way. Mm-hmm. So it's very much a pick your battles kind of situation where it's like, okay, these little things, are they really something that I want to argue with the child on or have that sort of disagreement with compared to the bigger things? I'm not sure I would even say it that way, Dina. I don't, I don't want to think of it in terms of pick your battles. I don't want parents, first of all, I want parents to try to say yes. If it's a reasonable thing, if the kid can do it, if the kid wants to try to do it, if we can feel that they're being safe, if it doesn't require too much of us, of our worry, of our resources, of our time, of something else, I want parents to try to say yes. And at the same time, Parents have to say no, especially when it's a safety issue. And they might even say no. Again, remember I said that the parents are holding the big picture. And so there may be pieces of it where saying yes to one child means messing things up for another child. So it's not necessarily that I'm trying to say no to you over here. It's like, It's not that I'm trying to, I have nothing against what you're trying to do. It's not that I want to say no to you, Dina. It's that when I hold the big picture in mind, I have to make all the pieces fit together. That's my job as your parent. And I'm going to try to find a way to make it work for you. But if I can't, I need you to accept that. Okay. So like going back to that example that you said of a child going on a train or going to see, going to the city and taking the train. By themselves. Sure. How, yeah. how would you sort of prepare a child for that and the kind of um, rules and restrictions that that you would put in place to sort of get both sides being okay with the trip, for example? Well, so 
I would probably put a lot back on the child, right? So if the child's coming and, okay, so first of all, um, I, I want to I quick teach you a technique that I call the yes, 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 and at the same time technique. And the technique is to keep the back and forth positive and to really acknowledge where the kid is and, and what's exciting about it. So, um, you know, let's say that I'm going to make him a band name. Um, let's say the Chop and Chiquitas are coming to town. And so and my child go, comes to me and says, oh, my gosh, the Chopping Chiquitas are going to be in San Francisco. And um, Beth and Tom and Sally and Lucy and I want to go on the train to see it. The first thing I'm going to say is not no. The first thing I'm going to say is, oh, my gosh, the Chopping Chiquitas are coming to town. You love them. That's so exciting. They're going to go, yeah. And Sally and Lucy and Tom and I want to go see it. And Sally and Lucy and Tom and you guys all want to go see it. And they would be great people to go see a concert with. Right? So what am I saying? I have nothing wrong with the Chomping Chiquitas. I see no problem with the people that you want to go see it with. And they go like, yeah. And the train goes right to the venue. So I'm going to go, that's great that the train goes right to the venue. And at the same time, okay, so yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And at the same time, I'm worried about there being drugs and alcohol and you guys not having any experience with dealing with people who are drunk or high. Mm -hmm. Now we start a conversation. What's your average 13-year-old going to say? Like, oh, my God, Mom, we'll be fine. We'll stick together. We'll do this. And so I'm going to go, yes. I'm so glad that you had thought about the idea of sticking together. That's a really great strategy for saying, staying safe. And at the same time, you guys are still physically small and you've never been around people who are drunk and high. Well, mom, we would stay in the light. It wouldn't be that big of a deal. We would go right to our seats. We would do this and do that. And again, I'm going to be positive and I'm going to go, I can see you've really thought about how to stay safe. And that's great. And at the same time, you've never experienced this with a parent before. And these are very unpredictable, volatile situations. That's just the nature of going to a, a, a thing. I can't see letting you go alone. And eventually, so now the child sees a little opening, right? Because now I've just said I can't see letting you go alone. And so now the child can go like, well... What if we got a parent to come with us? Okay, now we're beginning to get into the territory where I might begin to feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to find a way to say yes. I'm not trying to just say no for the sake of it. And even if you know my reaction is kind of no way, I'm not trying to, to have that be my reaction. I would like to find a way to have it feel safe. If a child's like, well, you, well, can I go? Can I go? My, my stock answer is like, if you need an answer right now, the answer is no. If you'll give me some time to think about it, if, you'll, if we can come back to this and have more conversations about it, I'll see what I can do to make it a yes. 
But at the end of the day, if all the boxes aren't checked out for me, it's still going to be a no. And the reason that that's going to be okay with my child is A, because I've really acknowledged all the good, fun things and smart things that my kid has figured out about this. B, I've really tried to say yes to her in other situations. And C, I've stayed warm and connected so that, you know, it's not a conflict. It's not a, oh my God, you, you know, all the other parents are letting them go. I hate you. Door slam, run away. It's not me now going like, how dare you speak to me that way? You're grounded for a week. And mm-hmm. I'm sure you can imagine that. That's sometimes how it does go in some families. Yep. Yeah. Yep, 100%. Um, so how do you sort of deal with that? Because growing up, that's how my parent used to be. It used to be um, I go around to a festival with a friend. My dad would stay miles away, but he could still see us in every mm-hmm. aspect. So – would that be an okay thing to sort of not be there with them, but watch them from a distance? Or is that something that could sort of have a negative impact on it as well? Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think again, it would depend on the it would depend on the venue. It would depend on the time of day. It would depend on you know. I mean, a lot of concerts don't really get started until very late, right? So. You know, a festival that's happening in the middle of, a, of the afternoon is going to feel different than a, a concert where maybe the headliner isn't actually on stage until like 10 o'clock, which means people have already had a lot of time to drink. And there's, you know, and there's just the difference of how we, how we experience things like out in the sunshine, in the open, things don't get, tend to get as intense. And all I'm not I'm, I'm thinking about the child's physical safety, but I'm also thinking about their emotional safety, right? That um, you know there are going to be some things that I can't even if I'm there with them that I can't necessarily protect them from, or where things could get out of whole hand really really quickly. So I'm just always going to be, it's always going to be trying to weigh my best judgment with the event with the child that particular child, and it's not going to be a blanket rule. Right, I may say yes to you, but I might not say yes to your sister because your sister's a different personality. I can maybe you know she's much more impulsive. Maybe I can't trust her to absolutely um, listen to me when I say. And if you know, and if I if I have to step in and give a command like we're out of here, if I can't trust you to do that, then that's going to be a no for me. But in general, I like the idea of, um, of yes, parents be, being nearby, but not having to uh, encroach on their child's sense of independence or on their, on their, not having, you know, parents are so uncool, right? Um, and I think parents really need to realize that um, right now, children, at, you know, that, that, early adolescence and even later adolescence, but especially early adolescence, especially like, you know, 11 to 14, they are so afraid of being judged that anything that you do or say 
anything you do or say is just weird and is embarrassing. So it really should be your job in some respects to like melt into the background and not step forward unless it's a little bit of reminder that, oh, oh yeah, we have an adult nearby, but otherwise do it. And, you know, I, I, I had a client tell me a story of she was hurt because, you know, like her 12 year old won't kiss her goodbye anymore. And I'm like, of course your 12 year old won't kiss you goodbye. Like, don't expect that. That's not fair. Like they are trying to separate and to stand on their own feet and to be out in the world without your presence. So don't rub it in their face that you're there. You know, drift drift away a little bit. Melt, melt into the background. Mm-hmm. Okay, so with the, what do you think would be the effect of the parent on a parent's perspective, for example, how would you deal with sort of le- not letting go, but I think for lack of better word, I think just sort of letting go of the reins a little bit. Cause for a lot of parents, it's really hard to sort of be like, okay, this child needs to learn to be independent, but at the same time, how can I let them be independent in a world that's just so full of all different kinds of people? So how, how would you have that um, understanding with your child, for example? Yeah, that's a super hard question because it's really hard to assess the dangers of the world. In some regards, uh, at least in the United States, I'm not saying what the statistics look like other places, but at least in the United States, the chances, for example, of stranger danger, the chances of being picked up off some, up off the street by somebody in general are no higher than they were than say when I was a child. That being said, um, the chances of them being groomed for sex trafficking, whether that's in person or online are much higher. And, and, and in a way more insidious because the people who are doing the grooming can look like ordinary, friendly people who, um, who just want to interact with your child, like who just want to be a positive influence. And again, in general, I want adults to be out there in the community being caring adults, right? You can make such a difference. Like if there's a teen who's doing the, you know, bagging your groceries, like taking the moment to look at them in the face and to say, hey, how's it going? How was school today? Is a fabulous example of being a caring adult. And I want grown-ups to do that. I want them to not just like look over teens. I want them to look at teens and to see them and to interact with them. Or, you know, if there's a teen standing on the corner, it always amuses me when, you know, you've got a, a teen and maybe they've they've got you know a punked out haircut maybe they've got an earring in their nose maybe they're standing there in their you know their leather jacket and their radiating attitude you know it always amuses me when I see people like give them space and stand away from them and 
you know, when there's like nothing wrong with coming and saying, hey, how are you today? How's your day going? Right? We're both waiting for the light to turn. Why not see them and treat them like a person? Hey, how's your day going? So on the one hand, we want our kids to be trustful of that kind of interaction, right? We want them to feel seen and feel appreciated by people other than just their parents. Mm-hmm. And yet, on the other hand, there are there really are dangers. So here's a little bit of a way around of, you know, how can we do it? So our kids are built to rebel. Biologically, with the, back in the hunter-gatherer age, uh, you know, I used to think that all of the hormones that were there to uh, make the sexual body changes, the byproduct of it was the rebellion, and the byproduct of it was the impulsivity and the taking risks. But the current theory is that that's actually part of the design. Because if you think about hunter-gathering tribes, you needed the young men of one tribe to snub their nose at their parent and leave the village and break the rules and go out and maybe find the next tribe. And you needed the young lady in the next tribe to snub her nose at her parents. And instead of when she saw the handsome young man coming down the path, Instead of running back to the village and going, you know, stranger, 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 she'd look at him and say, hi, stranger, <laughs> right? Because that's what brought, that's what mixed up the, the genetic material. And so there was a good reason for it. And that's kind of a scary thing to do. You know, the rules are saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. So what does the body do to encourage teens to take those risky, scary moves? It rewards them with feel-good hormones. So when they go out and they take that risk or they say no to their parent, they get, and to the closest analogy I can think of kind of is when you climb up a high mountain, right? And you've pushed yourself a little bit and, you know, you could climb 300 feet and go from the bottom halfway up and it wouldn't feel satisfying right? But if the mountain's only 300 feet and you push your way to the top and you're at the top and you have that moment of victory, even in old age, I think people get to the top of the mountain and they get flooded with that, I have achieved something, I've done something. So we know how it feels. Mm -hmm. And that's how our kid feels when they take a risk or they rebel a little bit. So what can a parent do? A parent can provide constructive ways for them to rebel or to take risks that we know are safe and we feel comfortable with. And what might that look like? That might look like, hey, um, Dina, I see that the toilet is leaking. Could you go online and look up two or three different plumbers and check their ratings and see if they have good reviews? And call them and see if one of them would be able to come out this afternoon. To us, that is a chore, right? That's like, oh my gosh, it's on my to-do list. I have to get it done. That darn toilet. But to a 13, 14-year-old, 12, 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old, that is, that's risky, right? 
because first of all, we are trusting them to find somebody good. We're trusting them to find somebody who's, who's um, going to be trustworthy, reliable, who's going to show up, whose who's work is uh, reasonably priced. And they have to call and talk to a stranger. Right? And our kids who are only used to texting to actually have to call and get on the phone and say, uh, you know, hey, quick and ready plumbers, this is our problem. Could you come out? That's a big, a big step. So when as parents, we look for those kinds of opportunities to push our kids out of their comfort levels, now when they've been successful, now when we sit down at the table and we can say, oh, Dina, honey, thank you so much for finding that plumber today. I'm so, he seems like a really great guy. It looks, the plumber, you know, the toilet is definitely not running anymore. It was a reasonable price. You took such a big burden off my plate and I really appreciate it, right? Now we are giving them our own kind of high for taking that risk and for doing that little area of growth. And there's really a lot of examples like that, that when we begin to think about it, we can let our kids do. Not to mention the ways in which we let them figure things out and fail on their own, because that's also a risk, right? Especially if we've been parents who have really been breaking down, like our, our students' schoolwork, for example. Middle school is a great time. Like this shift, again, is a great time to step back and to use questioning to help our kids develop their independence and critical thinking skills, but to not actually be micromanaging it. Mm -hmm. Right? So yep. let's say a child has to do a book report. Um, you know, they have to read something and they have to find some way of, of presenting on it. Or maybe they have to, you know, write a paper or something. So the captain of the ship mom, right, who has a six, seven, eight-year-old who has a project to do, is going to sit down and say, okay, this is your project, so I want you to work on it for 10 minutes and I want you to do this much and then we'll do that, that. And there, there is a we aspect to it. And there's that that can be legitimate because a six, seven, eight year old still doesn't have strategies for how to do things. But now we have to give the 11, 12, 13 year old the opportunity to choose their own strategies and to choose what's going to work for them. So let's say that um, I might start by saying, um, hey, Dina, didn't you? You said you had a book report due at next Friday. What's your plan for that? I'm not going to ask, how's it going? Because what are they going to say? It's going good. It's going fine. Yeah. It's going fine. It's good, right? So I'm going to say, what's your plan for that? Mm -hmm. And they're going to like, well, I'm going to read it and I'm going to, and I'm going to write on it. And I might say something like, well, it's due Friday, right? Um, do you think you're going to need any help from daddy or me on before you turn it in? And that's a great question because it gets them thinking like, oh, well, maybe I would, 
you know, maybe if you could proofread it for me um, or, yeah. or just, you know, edit it or look over a final, because now that gives you the chance to say, you know, I've got a meeting on Thursday night. So if you leave it until Thursday, I'm not going to be able to do that for you. Um, you know, do you think you could have it written by, by Wednesday? Okay. Now they're thinking in advance. Now they're going ahead. And if you get to Wednesday and they haven't written anything, you know, then you can say, oh, so your plan was to have it written by today so that I could edit it for you. What got in the way of your plan? And so that helps them be critical thinkers. So I'm not stepping in going like, okay, Dina, you know what you need to do? Or what you should have done was, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to keep putting it back on the child. What was your plan? Why do you think it went wrong? What do you think you could have done instead? And if they're super, super stuck, then I might go to, are you open to to a suggestion? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of... um doing it as a internal reward system for themselves, being like, okay, this is this action that I need to take in order to be responsible for the book report. So how much can I get done in this amount of time before I need to have it proofread or I need to have it submitted? So it's kind of like teaching them being responsible, but at the same time, oh, it's a good job. I'm still going to do a good job at the end of it kind of system. Absolutely. Absolutely. And depending on the child's uh, development, right? Some, some kids are chronologically 11, 12, 13, but maybe their executive functioning skills are lagging in some area. And so it might be super hard for them to uh, organize their work. But the chances are they've probably never themselves had to think about how to organize their work because either the teacher or the parent has laid it all out and just put the next step in front of them. And this is a great age to start thinking, for them to start thinking big, big picture. But you really want them to do it now. So, you know, when they're 15, 16, 17, 18, they're taking that on themselves. That, you know, basically there are very few incidences where a kid, you know, sort of 15 to 18 should need help with their schoolwork from a parent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So now this is one of the parts of the episode I was really, really looking forward to when it comes to the role-playing of different situations. So I would love to talk a bit more about doing homework, for example. And we've just gone through it, but sort of a sentence-by-sentence way and how you would respond to a I think a more challenging child, maybe I could play. I could definitely try to in the, um, grow in my inner um, emo child and sort of bring that into perspective as well. Excellent. Sure. Um. So in this scenario, um, a parent becomes frustrated with his son because he's not doing well in his grades. So looking at the school report for the term, um, he's chatting with. He comes up to his son and comes up to his daughter and she's chatting with friends on a computer or playing a game and just not paying attention to it. So 
in the perspective, just the child, you're calling out to her, to her and I am definitely not listening to you. So how would you sort of get the child's attention, get my attention and just sort of bring them into thinking about that responsibly? Okay, so I'm going to redesign your scenario just a bit because I would never have the first conversation with them when they were chatting or on the computer, Okay, right? I would wait to a time when they weren't, like maybe I'd pick them up and they're in the car and then I might say, um, you know, hey, Dina, your school report has come and I'd like for us to sit down and look at it together. Would you like to do that? Uh, tonight after dinner or tomorrow night after dinner? Could I do it another time? I'm really busy. Okay. When do you think would work for you, Dina? Um, I'm not sure. Probably just later. I need a little bit more clarity on when later is going to be to make sure that this happens because we don't want you to start the new semester without a plan. I'll do it tomorrow then. Okay. Tomorrow after dinner. 15 minutes, 20 minutes tops. And if we need more time, then we can, we can schedule more time. How does that sound? Yeah, sure. That's fine. Okay. Excellent. All right. So now it's tomorrow and you are, you are, um, you're chatting with your friends online, Mm -hmm. right? And so, um, I'm going to say, Hey, excuse me, Dina. What, what's up? Remember you said that you would give me 15 or 20 minutes to talk about your grades tonight after dinner? Oh, yeah. I'm chatting with, I'm chatting with Rebecca now. Can we do it later? Absolutely. Would you like to do it in 10 minutes or in 15 minutes? 15 minutes. Shall I set the alarm or is it okay if I just come back and get you? Uh, I, I guess I can do it now. I'll just, stop t- I'll just turn it off now then. Okay. Great. Wonderful. Come, come, let's go sit at the table and do that. Okay, fine. (laughs) You're way too easy, Dina. Oh, God. I was never the argumentative child. That's why I'm trying my hardest. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to, like, you have to, yes, you're in a bad girl. You have to to really do it. Let's try. (laughs) You want to try again? We'll try it again. (laughs) Okay, let's say we actually came to the table now. Okay. Okay. All right. So I, I... you really want to, like, you really want me off your case. Okay. You do not want to talk to me about this. All right? You ready? Yep. Okay. Um, so, uh, Dina, have you looked at your, have you looked at your, your report yet? No, I haven't. Okay. Well, it's right here. Why don't you take a moment to look at it? Yeah, it's, I got a C. I thought that was pretty good. You like, you feel good about your C? Tell me about that. Well, I studied, I studied for it. I read the book and I did exactly what I was supposed to do. Wonderful. So you feel good that the work you put in represents the grades that you got? Oh, I think it's just enough. I think I worked really hard for it. Do you think you, you worked as hard as you could work? Yeah. Yeah, I think I did. Love hearing that you put in your full effort. That's fabulous. Is would you be open to a suggestion? I guess so. So I'm just curious. I don't know, but I'm just thinking that 
I know you, I know the, that you're spending a lot of time studying for that class. And I'm just wondering if you were, if you weren't on the phone at the same time, if maybe the studying would be more efficient and you might get more out of it. I was studying with Amy. You guys were studying, you were on the phone and studying yep. at the same time. Um, great. And I mean, I know you, I know I would get distracted some of the time, like on a scale of one to 10, where 10 was like, you were a hundred percent studying. What do you think realistically you guys were doing? What does it matter? I studied, for, we were here and I was studying together. I love that you were studying together. Dina, that's such a good strategy to have a study buddy. I know that I can learn things more and understand things more when I work with somebody too. And at the same time, I'm hearing you say that you worked really hard and it was a lot of work. And I'm just curious to know if the work were a little bit more focused and had less social stuff going on in between the work, if maybe either you wouldn't have to work so hard for the same grade, or if maybe you could bring that grade up in the next semester. I guess I probably could have worked harder on it. Yeah. So, like, what do you you think? Like, right now you were at, like, a 7 in 70% of the time you were working and 30% of the time you guys were chatting about other stuff? Well, Amy had a lot of issues that she had to deal with as well. So I think we were trying to balance the both of them together. Dina, you're such a good friend to Amy. I love what a good friend you are. You know, friendship is super important. And at the same time, I just wonder if it might help if you could compartmentalize a little bit and maybe like say to her, um, hey, let's study for 45 minutes and then let's take a break and you can tell me about your boyfriend. I guess that kind of makes sense. Would you be willing to try that in this coming semester? I think I can. I think I'll try a little bit harder on it. Okay. Um, how would you feel if we checked in on it in, say, a month and just to see how's it, if it feels any different and if you still feel like you can be a good friend, but maybe at the same time you're you're being a little bit more focused and efficient in your studying. Okay, I think we can do that. Okay, that sounds great, like a great plan. Thanks for your 10 minutes. Wow, I actually felt that. I'm not going to lie. I felt like it felt very, it, it, it's kind of reminded me of that yes, yes, yes. Yes that you were talking about it just really it didn't feel like it was just nagging in a way and that's sort of what a lot of parents um from like not direct from like experience that's what a lot of parents sort of like end up sounding like especially to a teenager so having that sort of praise in a different aspect sort of made it seem a little bit less like it was just a parent telling a child to do something. Yeah. So let's let's just list some of the things that some of the choices that I made that were effective. Mm-hmm. One, I set up a time ahead of time. Okay. Right. Yep. Two, in the moment where you it could have turned into a like 
I need to talk to my friends, you know, it doesn't have to happen now, you're so uptight kind of answer. I, I still gave you some room for choice, but I also held the line. Yeah. We made an agreement that we were going to meet and talk after dinner. And now yeah. you're talking to your friends and I loved it when you just came in and you were just like, fine, I might as well just talk to you now. <laughs> that was really funny. Right. But, it, but you know, I mean, it was like, it, there was this flex, I was being flexible, but still holding the line and being firm. Yep. Right. Yeah. Then, you know, you were saying that, um, a C, you know, I think what you were trying to do was kind of say, well, a C is good enough. And I didn't argue with you about that. Instead, I focused on the amount of effort that you put in. And when you said, I worked really hard, I didn't argue. I didn't, I didn't criticize you. You know, I didn't say you weren't working really hard. I asked permission. That's another you know, tip for success is asking permission for input. And then I asked it as a question, right? Is it possible that uh, you're, you know, in working, you know, and I didn't, when you said, you said, well, Amy and I are working together. I wasn't sarcastic. I wasn't like, that's not what it feels. That's not what it sounds like to me. Right. I tried to get you to be a little bit clearer and a little bit more specific. And when you said, well, she had these problems, I acknowledged that a big part of being a teenager, probably the biggest part of being a teenager is the relationships and the friendships that, that teens have. Mm-hmm. So if you are, you know, putting down those relationships and the importance of those relationships, you're going to put a barrier between you and your teen. You're going to disconnect. Yep. So in acknowledging the importance of it, that helped you shift to saying like, well, okay, maybe. Maybe I could compartmentalize a little bit. Maybe I could get my 70% up to 80%. Yep. Yeah. It was really nice to sort of see it not be the typical parent-child conversation. It sort of turned into a point where the child couldn't argue. And like I tried very hard to argue. I'm not. I tried very hard. You brought up some good teen arguments. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's the extent of my arguing abilities. Um, if you compare me and my sister, for example, she could argue till till the parent ends up giving in. But I think just having that, you sort of put the parent in a child's perspective, being like, okay, this is their in a way, adult friendship. This is what they're trying to build. So understanding that is sort of like where you're not, like you said, just not drawing the line as to where your this issue is more important than what their teen is going through. So sort of yeah. having that understanding between the both of them. It was really interesting to sort of see that take place and just watching the way that you worded things was really was really enlightening as well, especially for me, especially for um, a no longer child, just sort of like seeing that from how it would be. So it was really, it was a really nice conversation, actually. Oh, good. <laughs> so to sort of end the episode, I would love to sort of give you the floor and give you a chance to talk about anything that you are passionate 
about. And it does not have to be related to this topic at all, just sort of something that you've recently loved talking about and having conversations about. Uh, I mean, I, I, I have to admit, I am... I'm pretty darn nerdy when it comes to thinking about parenting and kids. And I, I actually, when I was in the ninth grade, which here in the States is when you are like 14, more or less 14 going on 15. Um, and it's sort of where we learn to write a, a much bigger, longer research paper. When I was growing up today, kids are learning it a little earlier. But it's sort of the first experience with a research paper. And so very often, uh, students are given the opportunity to write on whatever they want to write on because teachers want them to be interested in it. So I wrote my very first research paper on how to be an effective parent. Wow. I know. (laughs) So, you know, and I didn't... uh, And then when I got to college, I thought maybe I would study psychology. And I just happened to hear the education professor speak, which is how I switched over to to education. But from the first time that I was a mother's helper when I was nine or 10, to babysitter, to tutor, to camp counselor, I have spent most most of my life, most every day of my life, thinking about how to engage with kids more effectively. Mm-hmm. how to help them thrive and fully step into the their own unique selves while at the same time still learning how to be civilized human beings who are responsive to the to the expectations that are going to be placed on them uh so so yeah so i can i can but i'll tell you i'll, t- I'll tell you i had a conversation with a friend today because this is something that i'm struggling with and so i'll share that and mm-hmm. that is um, as a teacher, I had pretty strict senses of, um, the dress code at school and Mm -hmm. what it should be. And I was one of the teachers at school who was pretty like cut and dried about this is what the dress code is. You meet it. You're not meeting it. You need to meet it. And now, you know, now the argument today is dress codes are, really unfair to girls because there is about one or two dress codes for guys and there are a long list of dress codes for girls and girls it interferes with their fashion much more often like the the dress codes that guys have really don't interfere with their fashion that much but with girls it does a lot and so how do we find this balance between um not wanting to victimize girls not wanting to fall into the argument that um, girls are asking for sexual attention from boys, right? That a woman should be able to wear whatever she wants to wear and it shouldn't be about sex, right? It should be about what's comfortable. And if you think about the sort of, you know, if there's no dress code, most kids right now today are wearing uh, yoga pants and and crop, uh, crop tops and, you know, something over that. And if you think about it, that's, those are like really comfortable clothing. It's easy to move in. Um, it makes, it makes sense why somebody would want to wear them. And it's not necessarily about being cute, being attractive, being sexualized. 
it could just be about like, this is comfortable, right? This is really, these are comfortable clothes. And, but I feel like I have a lot of conflict. This is a place where I feel like, ooh, I'm so glad I'm not a school administrator right now because I'm not sure if I had to sit in the teacher's meeting and vote, are we going to allow this or are we not going to allow it how I would vote? Um, and I kind of make the argument differently. And part of the argument I make is um, as a teacher, you ask me to show up and look professional so that we take, you know, that we, that the school environment feels different than the not school environment so that we're taking things a little bit seriously and we're studying. And so that's kind of my argument is I would like, I would like, uh, you know, human beings of whatever age or gender to show up at school looking a little bit more pulled together and a little bit more formal. But I, you know, I recognize that uh, the dress codes themselves and certainly the way that they're implemented um, are really about judging girls and their sexuality. And, uh, and it's very sticky. I don't know. Maybe you have a, a perspective as, as, a, as a younger person on that. No, I, I kind of agree with the whole perspective of, you know, you won't go into an office wearing sweatpants and a hoodie, for example. Like, so having, like, you're going into a place where you are having to be respectable like look respectable in a sense. And like, like you said, I think it's a good analogy having teachers have to wear what looks professional. So you should sort of get kids having, knowing that this is a place, this is a professional environment in a way. This is not like going to a friend's house kind of thing. This is not a socializing place. And I think that's where a lot of people, a lot of teenagers like from what I've seen growing up a lot of teenagers have that idea of you know I go there just to socialize I go there just to see friends so they don't see it as a learning environment and I do I do kind of see the way that a um what you wear could be perceived like that especially when it's like okay I'm going to see friends so I have to look like every other person there, I'm not going there to learn. So I don't have to look like I'm there to learn. Just looking yeah. like every other person, every other teenager that's um, wearing the same thing. So it's kind of like the whole, I think, fear of missing out aspect comes into place. For sure. So, yeah. So there is that aspect. I th But a, a lot of um, schools in Australia, they have standardized Uniforms. Uniforms, yeah. Yeah, so it does sort of have um, a lack of individuality in my in my perspective. Right. But as soon as um, university or college hits, it's kind of a whole different story again where it's like everybody everybody's working, wearing sweatpants and wearing leggings and a crop top and just going to uni and that's a normal thing. So I think it's it's kind of like, learning from what they see and they'll take what they see and bring it into an environment where they're in at the moment being like okay college girls wear this so why can't I wear this kind of sure situation sure. And honestly honestly it's you know everything gets very blurred very quickly you know I'm I'm a solo entrepreneur 
which means if I'm just taking my laptop down to Starbucks because I want a different place to work in, you know, I might not be looking professional, but I'm doing my work. So it gets muddy mm-hmm. and it gets, it gets, it gets, it's, it's not easy, but, um, yep. So that's, that's a, a great example of you know, a question, which just kind of goes around in my mind that I yep. don't have a lot of, it, it feels very complex and I'm glad for the most part, I don't have to answer it. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, when parents true. ask me, I usually try to. I usually say, "Well, you know, I I feel like it is possible to find cute clothes that do actually meet the dress code." Mm-hmm. But they assure me that it's not. <laughs> you know, they're like, you know, like you know, no, it's like it's actually really hard to find uh, stuff that passes the dress code. So, yeah. Well, I would really love to thank you for joining us today and for talking about this issue, talking about this topic that I know a lot of parents really struggle with. And just seeing all the different techniques that you've come to realize or you've come to learn and just bringing them into this environment, i really like to thank you for joining us here. It's been a lot of fun. I especially love the role play and I will try um, bringing in my inner angst a little bit harder the next interview I have when that comes into play. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can, you can, you know, maybe, maybe watch a TV show and get some, some one-liners. Yeah. Yeah. I will do that. <laughs> um, I, I think, for example, like you could have, you know, some eye rolling or some, some, <laughs> some <laughs> sighing. I'm like, oh my God. Like, you know, it doesn't have to happen today. <laughs> Yep. Well, yeah. I'll definitely, I'll definitely keep practicing on that now. <laughs> All right. I'd love to thank I'm, everyone. I'm really good at doing that, teenager. <laughs> well, I would love to thank everyone for listening today, and I hope you've all learned something. I definitely introduce um, love for you to um, search up Elizabeth as well, and just have a look at all that she's done. And I think you have a website, don't you? I do. It's yeah. just my name. Uh, elizabethstitt.com and it's elizabeth with an s not a z so e-l-i-s-a-b-e-t-h s-t-i-t-t and uh and i i offer a lot of parent education and i do a lot online and with through zoom and you know i would like to invite your listeners i'm assuming most of your listeners are in australia uh, if they're interested in something, but the timing doesn't work, they should ping me anyway and say, hey, have you ever considered offering it at such and such a time? Because there are times that make that work. Yeah. Um, and I would, I would be happy to, to schedule something at, at a time that work really works well for Australian parents. Oh, that sounds great. I We'll definitely encourage everyone listening today to go and look her up and get her advice on any issues that you may have when it comes to dealing with a child. Um, So yeah, thank you everyone for listening today. And I hope this podcast has been very informational for everyone. You've been listening to Raising Parents, the Parenting Science Insights Podcast, produced by the Parenting Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 Life Management Perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe to our channel so that other people can find it and we can continue to provide quality content. More of our work can be found on our website at pa.lmsl.net where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent and thanks for tuning in.